BBCC episode 7. I'm going to open today's show with a quote from the book of Jesus. So can I get everybody to turn to New Slaves 413, verse 1, bar 5. You see, it's broke nigger racism. That's that don't touch anything in the store. And it's rich nigger racism. That's that come in, please buy more. Damn. Kanye talking about systematic racism in 2020, all the way back in 2013. The kind of uh, weird and ironic uh, about what he's been talking about lately. Oh, Kanye, I, I love you, you, you strange, strange man. What an enigma. But that's, that's my realization of the day. Let's go ahead and get to the show. Oh yeah, there we go. There's some good Harley grunts. Welcome to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, guys. This is episode number seven. We are back at it. We're feeling good. Me and Harley, we're really hot right now. It's a little bit sweaty in the Bloody Blunt's Cinema Club studio. It's a uh, it's a nice sweltering 90-something degrees out here in sunny L.A., and so that's why it's perfect because it is July. It's super hot outside. And Bloody Blunt Cinema Club for July, I, I've decided with the show, I'm going to try and do monthly themes. We'll see if I stick to that and how closely I stick to that. But I got the next couple of months planned out. So, um, yeah, so we're going to try some themes. So for all the episodes in July, we are having some fun in the sun because it is July. It's hot. It's sweaty, and you know what goes good with sweat? A lot of blood, because I love me some summertime, daytime horror, and we're going to talk a little bit more like daytime horror in another episode as well, but this is specifically, um, there's a lot of the films I'm going to be talking about are some of my favorites that take place during the day outside, um, and whatever subgenre we get into, that's where we're going to go. So for today, we do have just one movie that we're going to start off with. But before we get into that, you know, just uh, some general things. How's everybody doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. You know, um, the podcast going a few weeks now. The Chucky series went over pretty well. Um, you know, got the attention of Don Mancini on Twitter, which was super fantastic. He, you know, gave the show a nice shout out. And uh, that's pretty awesome. So I'm really glad because it it just also seemed that, you know, I just kind of caught the timing right that a lot of people were revisiting the Child's Play movies for Pride Month. I wasn't the only one and it just kind of worked out really well because I didn't plan it either. So uh, I'm really happy with how those episodes went. So, yeah. So but now, you know, like spending three weeks on just Chucky movies, though, it is my favorite slasher series my brain is just so melted and like over it with Chucky information now. So, so yeah, definitely could be done with Chucky for a hot second. But you know, you never know if he's going to come up later in the future. 
So to kind of cleanse the palate, I want to do, and because I was covering multiple movies for each of those episodes for the past three episodes, so I'm also happy to just like kind of wind down and we're just going to talk one movie. This could be a, a, a short and sweet episode, nice and tight, just one movie that we're talking about, cleanse the palate, get into the summertime mood here on the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. I'm super excited. So um, before we get going, guys, make sure if you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure you subscribe, but also please, please, please leave a five-star review. (laughs) I could use it. I mean, not that the numbers are bad or anything, but they could always be better, you know, when you're at the beginning phases of, I mean, starting anything, you know, is hard, but specifically podcasts because, you know, a lot of podcasts, you, you build your audience over time, and you just got to stay consistent with it and keep it going. So as long as the numbers are trending positively, I'm happy. However, I could use some more reviews so that way we could get on the charts on Apple so that way more people can find it. And um, I, I guess it probably works the same way with Spotify, just as long as you're, as long as you're um, you know, listening and downloading the episodes, I think just the more it does that on Spotify, the more it'll come up on their list as well. So just make sure you guys do that. I would really appreciate it. But um, but yeah, before we get into, so yeah, anyway. <laughs> oh, I don't know where my words are at. It's okay. It's a, it's, it's a Monday. Like I said, I think it's the heat in here. Like I got, I got a fan going. I really hope that you don't hear that in the background, uh, but I mean, I need the fans. Uh, we don't have central AC up in here. That's a little bit of a problem. I don't love it. Um, you know, possibly might be moving, recording the podcast to another location anyways, but you know, that's down, that's down the line. But for now, uh, I'm in a sweaty, sweaty room with, uh, with a bunch of like clothes and fucking a backdrop. So it's just, nice and cold or nice and hot uh like harley is like literally just like sprawled out in front of the the fan right now oh i love that boy so much ah but yeah i can't fucking can't think so i guess we're just gonna go ahead and get straight into uh go ahead and get straight into the talking uh oh (laughs) I, i should probably tell you what movie we're talking about. I didn't mention it yet. Today we're talking about uh, The Bad Batch. It's a movie that came out in 2016, directed by Anna Lily Amirpour. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a nice little hidden gem. It's one of those movies that people hated or loved it. It's one of those quote-unquote substance o- or style over substance movies, whatever you want to call it, but you guys kind of get my taste by now. That That's kind of my jam. So, uh, that's the movie we're going to be talking about today, so let's go ahead and... <laughs> Does anybody hate that I put that in the podcast? Like, I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, it is a jump scare and, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I, th- I think it's just so fun. I love it. Also, side note, I have a push pop. Boop. Like, do you remember push pops? Like, yeah, look at that. If you're, if you're seeing the video, which if you are seeing the video, cool, <laughs> but I don't, I just don't have my game plan for the video right now because I need another battery for my camera so I, I can like switch out while I'm recording because like, you know, I have to do multiple recordings, which is fine, 
but um, it's a pain in the ass because I only have one battery right now. So I need to do another battery. However, the guest episodes will for sure have video because uh, Zoom records the fucking video and saves it for you. So that's fantastic. So guest episodes will definitely have video, but I think as far as video episodes go for this, it's just going to be like, I'm going to do like clips. I'm going to pull clips because I am recording it. I think that would be, you know, a good way to get traffic into the YouTube, do clips instead, shorter clips, and then be like, Hey, listen to the podcast. And then maybe Patreon will get the full video of the solo episodes of, um, of the podcast. It's just a lot of work for me right now because it's just me. You know, I don't, I don't have a producer right now or somebody to pay as an editor. That would also be nice. But for now, it's just me and I'm still trying to figure shit out. But, um, but the guest episodes will definitely have video and I do have a guest coming up, um, for one of the episodes this month for, for our summertime stuff, but we'll get to that when the time comes. But anyways, back to getting to the Bad Batch. The Bad Batch I saw in, I saw at the Overlook Film Festival um, a few years back. That was the first film festival I went to. The Overlook Film Festival was huge for me getting into this horror community a little bit more tightly knit, like, because it was around the time that I started finding online journalism. But then it was also once I started to really, like, you know, immerse myself into the horror community of the film, of the film community. So I went to Overlook Film Festival. I got to work events for them and, um, like, do the after party and run sound. And I also, because I was, um, I had my own podcast at the time, Jesus Take the Real, and I conned them into letting me be able to come, and I pretty much said, hey, I'll work for you guys in exchange for, um, you know, an all-access pass and um, ability to get whatever interviews I can get for the podcast, and they said, yeah, uh, sure, we won't book the interviews for you, so you're on your own there, but since you're not, because I wasn't an accredited journalist or anything, like, I wasn't really writing for any websites yet, so I had no way of getting accreditation, but I did trick, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't say I tricked them, because, I mean, I did what I said I was going to do, I went up there, and I ended up working, and it was, it was such a great time, hanging out with so many different horror fans, and, like, I mean, we would just stay up drinking, and just talking about our favorite movies, you know, of course, like, the ones that not a lot of other people have seen, and, like, you know, just, all that stuff, and just, like, getting super, like, fucking nerdy about horror movies. It was just so fun to be on a team of, uh, like-minded individuals. I learned a lot. I got to do some fun festival things, see how festivals really work, and it was such a fun festival, too. It was, it was the very first year for the Overlook Film Festival, too. I think, and I think that's how, like, part of the reason why they brought me on whenever I said, hey, I'll work for you guys because it was their the first year for the festival and so I was like all right this is my fucking chance and for the first year of that festival it was up in Mount Hood Oregon now it's hosted in New Orleans the past couple of years and it it has you know not only all the genre films that you could want but it also has um they had like immersive horror experiences they had live podcast experiences they had one-on-one storytelling experiences 
It's a super, super fantastic festival. I absolutely cannot wait to go back again. I was hoping to go this year because it also, it always happens on my fucking birthday. It's always on my birthday weekend. But of course, um, Madam Corona had to come around and ruin plans for everybody. Um, So shout out to the Overlook Film Festival for um, really opening a lot of doorways for me. I made a lot of contacts. That's where I met uh, Kim and John, the hosts and editors of Nightmare on Film Street, uh, the podcast and website. That's where I met them and I did an interview with them and then I eventually started writing for them because this was really before they were, um, they were just building out the website at the time. So they were only covering the festival for the podcast. But I met them. We had, um, we had, you know, had a couple drinks and got to hang for a little bit. Super awesome. And that's how I met them. And then through them, through writing for Nightmare on Film Street, that's where I really got into the horror community. Hence where we're at right now, listening to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Anyways, so that's where I saw The Bad Batch. And I remember seeing the cast for it when the trailer came out. And I hadn't seen uh, Amirpour's other film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is also fantastic. I'll be covering that movie at some point on the podcast, um, whenever I'm talking vampire movies. But um, another great movie. She's a very talented filmmaker and just like really has like my vibe, my aesthetic, you know, with heavy use of music, um, you know, now, I won't say minimal dialogue, but a lot less dialogue than a lot of other films have. They just have this, they have this style, this, this, uh, this swagger to them. Yeah. Like it, it, because they're, they're sexy films, but not in like a sexy way. Like it's sexy for horror, but just the, the style of it, you know, she, she's very influenced by Tarantino and Lynch and those kind of guys to kind of give you just like an idea of it. So like, you know, this, this, uh, idea of Western style cinema meeting other subgenres, And that's what she's done at least with her first two films. And then her third films could be taking place in new Orleans. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it'll have a Western vibe, but it'll still probably have that noir vibe that, um, that she really likes. So a little more background on her, a girl walks home alone at night is, you know, she she touted it as the first Iranian vampire spaghetti western. I mean, that's exactly what the movie is and I mean, I haven't I mean that that's very specific so I'm going to trust her word for it. But yeah, and it was done partially in English and partially in uh or it was mainly done in um Iranian language, but it had like um a couple little scenes here and there English. Um, a really, really good film. It's in black and white. It's very stylish. Um, just long shots of just like kind of sitting in an environment. And that's what, that's something I want to do in films is, you know, of course I do want to tell a story. I want to tell something interesting, but at the same time, I just want to, I want to be able to take you to a world and just like let you sit and live in it for a minute. And that's definitely something that the Bad Batch does. Like I said, it's um, a lot of really cool shots. It's setting up the world and the, the, the where you're going into. And like I said, she uses a lot of music, not a lot of dialogue. Um, something I didn't know about her is that she suffers from 30% hearing loss. So that's what she kind of correlates with, you know, why she has a lack of dialogue in a lot of her movies. 
which I find interesting because, I mean, that's like easily my favorite part of this film is that you can watch it and words don't fucking matter. You know, if you can, if you're a really good visual storyteller and you you set up a very distinct world and you, you place characters in them that are well-defined and not only that, but you have actors. I was waiting for that. <laughs> so not only do you, you know, you make these interesting characters and you put them in an interesting world, but the true key is you have to have a cast, a cast of people that bring a true physical presence to the film without having to say much. You know, these people that say a lot with their body language and their facial expressions, but they just bring this this presence and magnetism so that way it draws you in more and you're like, oh, what are they going to say? So, like, every time that they do say something, it's usually a lot more important to the film. And that's something that I just love that she's willing to embrace. So, before, um, you know, a, a brief synopsis of The Bad Batch is, which... If you, I, I haven't said it on uh, some of the other episodes, but guys, I spoil every movie that we talk about on this podcast. So just know that going in, I highly recommend that you watch The Bad Batch. Um, I know it's um, a little bit more of an underrated film, a little bit more of a gem. So if you have not seen this film, it is streaming on Netflix right now. So this is your chance to leave the episode and go watch the film just in case if you haven't seen it. Because I guess I don't remind everybody on the episodes. I mean, I was talking about older movies with the Chucky movie, so I guess it was implied. But I don't care if it's an older or new movie. There's always going to be spoilers. So just so you know, um, before I get into the rest of the movie, there's always going to be spoilers in this podcast. So anyways, the background of The Bad Batch is that it's in this uh, kind of dystopian world where if you are charged of a crime you are and you are sentenced to be a part of the bad batch you are no longer a part of society you are banished to this wasteland in texas and you are uh you know you are banished and you're not a part of the country anymore technically and you are just left to fend for yourself you are no longer the responsibility of the united states anymore and you have to go fend for yourself and there's you know, we're going to come to find out there's kind of two different tribes. There's the bridge people that are uh, cannibalistic muscle heads. That's the way that they've chosen to live their life and survive is to eat other humans and just work out, you know, fucking protein up, bro. And then there is the people of comfort where a lot of Bad Batch people go and you basically just like live in an endless rave. Like it's just everybody's on drugs. There's always music. There's a dance party every night. And the leader of the tribe is a disco cult leader that goes by The Dream, played by Keanu Reeves. And that's basically the world that is set up. And we follow Arlen, played by Sookie Waterhouse, which shout out to Sookie Waterhouse. I made a tweet like, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, that if I were a woman, I would want to look like Sookie Waterhouse. She just has this interesting look and style. She's got the blonde hair and dark eyebrows, you know. She's got a great physique. 
And not only does she have a great physique, she puts that great physique to use in the film, too, with a lot of physical acting in this film. So big shouts to her on also having to act as uh, Arlen, who she she's a new Bad Batch member. And literally, as soon as she's cast off into the wasteland, she is um, kidnapped and uh, by some by um, by some of the bridge people. They kidnap her and they fucking chain her up. And like I said, they eat people. So they chain her up and they cut off her right arm and right leg. So (laughs) she just gets into the Bad Batch and now she's already missing an arm and a leg and has to fend for herself. And, you know, and we see and we definitely see that she's a very strong protagonist. I appreciate her so much. The main bridge person is played by Jason Momoa, who is uh, the Miami man is his name in the film. And some people had a stink about Jason Momoa, the Miami man, because as his name implies, it sounds like a Cubano guy, and that's what he's playing. Jason Momoa is not a Cubano man. He is from Hawaii. So, um, you know, people got kind of upset about that when there is a... But, you know, people got upset about a lot of things about race in this film, and we'll get into that. But... You know, it is what it is, you know, when you're in Hollywood and because I get it, like you don't want someone of one race playing another race, like especially today, people are just really not about that. But when it comes to something like this and, you know, because in Hollywood for ethnically ambiguous actors, a lot of the time this is how you get roles, you know? Think about it, how Australians and English people play Americans, and we don't make a fuss about that, or vice versa. You know, we don't make a fuss about that, really. Well, actually, English people do make a fuss about when Americans play English people, only if they have a bad English accent. But we don't, we don't make a big deal about that. And so, I mean, I get it, or, or it would be like if, you know, uh, if a... South Korean person was playing a Chinese person, maybe. Does this happen? I'm sure it does. I'm not really sure. But it's just kind of one of those things when you're in when you're in an ethnically ambiguous, you know, um position, sometimes that's the way you get roles in movies is okay, yes, I'm a little tan um because I'm Hawaiian, but I can be tan because I'm Cuban. Whatever. It's acting, guys. It's acting. You know, it's like when people get upset when, like, you know, I, I'm, I'd wonder if anybody in this, you know, if people got upset about Sookie Waterhouse playing an amputee in this movie. She wasn't born as an amputee, so I think obviously Arlen does get a little bit of a pass. But, you know, like people these days get just really upset about that kind of stuff. And it's, it's pretty annoying. So um, along in the cast, we also have um, we have a brief... Um, role from Giovanni Ribisi, who plays a just drugged out, rambling man, um, walking about, talking about the one thing you must remember. Um, and then, <laughs> so, so random, Diego Luna is in this movie, and he just plays this cowboy DJ that shows up for two scenes, cowboy DJ Jimmy, he's in two scenes of the movie, doesn't say a word. He just sits in this fucking DJ booth of this mobile stereo, mind you, a stereo on wheels, and he just sits in there DJing. 
that's it. He, he, he is in two scenes smoking a cigarette with sunglasses on and a cowboy hat DJing. Diego Luna. She got Diego Luna to do that in this movie. I just think that's really funny because, I mean, it, it's a really cool character. You know, he gets a nice shout out. Everybody loves Jimmy. But I was just like, I did not realize until yesterday because I've seen this movie quite a few times. I did not realize until yesterday that that was Diego Luna. But also, just the most genius piece of casting in this movie is she got Jim Carrey. And this is 2016, so Jim Carrey wasn't doing a lot of acting at this time. And I think what spoke to him was it was a challenging role because she got Jim Carrey, one of the most expressionist, uh, not one of the most expressionist, one of the most expressive comedians on the planet, you know, and but he is very expressive through his physical actions and his facial expressions that he plays a mute hermit in the in the film that he kind of is like a messenger that takes people to and from comfort and rescues people when they need rescuing and uh, gives them little trinkets. And he's just overall very sweet and very nice. And he doesn't he's one of the I mean, a lot of the people don't have a lot of dialogue in this movie. But Jim Carrey doesn't say a word, and I love that, and he's covered in this disgusting beard, and his skin looks like leather. It's great. Like, I mean, Jim Carrey's one of my favorite people ever. And like I said, this was at a time where he wasn't really acting a whole lot, so just the fact that he thought it was an an interesting enough role to portray and to not have any lines or anything... I think that's really cool, and it's a really it was a very smart casting choice um, by Anna Lily. So an, a new segment that I'm putting into the show because, like I said, this show is about exploring the subgenres within horror. You know, all the all the horror adjacent branches in the genre, and just like kind of breaking down the 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 subgenres and what how those subgenres come together into making this movie. So we're going to call that the genre grinder because this is a weed podcast still and I haven't even hit this bong once yet. Uh, I'm not doing a joint today just because I didn't want my throat hurting. But um, but but the genre grinder before we get into the movie because, you know, you got to grind your weed up real nice and so that way it's nice and fluffy and fine when you smoke it and you get a smoother smoke. You know, that's what grinding weed does. Um, some, some people don't like to grind weed like my girlfriend. I think it's the oddest thing in the world and, but you know, to each their own, some stoners grind weed, some don't. I'm a grinder guys. And we're going to grind up the genre of the bad batch and figure out what the hell's going on in here while I also take a hit of this bong real quick. Oh, yeah. I wonder how many uh, noises of Harley you get here, too. He's pretty vocal today. All right. Anyways, the genre grinder that we got going on here is, so, the Bad Batch. You have this dystopian, It's it's it doesn't look futuristic, but you would assume... But it doesn't have to be futuristic either. I think dystopia, people always do think of sci-fi. But when I think of dystopia, it's like 
a world that's similar to our own, but not like this isn't a surreal element. Um, but it is a Western, I say, because one, it takes place in broad daylight, hence why we're uh, covering it on this mo- on this podcast. I mean, yes, uh, there's scenes at night in this movie, but a lot of this movie is just sun scorched because you feel for the people that are, you know, out there to fend for themselves and like kind of putting you in the mindset of being like, damn, like not only do they have to fend themselves, you know, keep themselves safe and they have to feed themselves, but then also the fact that they put this wasteland in Texas, you know, they could have been nice and put it in Florida, you know, or maybe banish them to the mountains or something, but no, they said, we're going to take them out to the desert and throw them out there. So you really do just like feel the heat of this movie. It's very bright. Um, there's a lot of yellows in the movie too. So even the colors stacked on top of the daylight just create this overwhelming warm experience. And it's just like, ah, like you want to get out of the sun while you're watching this movie. But I, it, it has Western elements because you have, we follow this character. She's, we don't really know much about her. She has this mysterious background. Um, she's not exactly a drifter because, but she kind of is a drifter, you know, because now she doesn't have a place in the world. So she, she is a drifter of sorts. So if you follow a Western in that aspect, and then, you know, she also uses a, she uses a revolver handgun at different, at, for important parts of the movie. So you have the, the, the Western, um, aspects there and it's a Western noir, you know, you do follow this character and you just kind of, you know, there's not the narration, but they do use a, a way for her to not speak when she's on an acid trip. So you are getting like her internal thoughts, but she's still not speaking. Because, you know, Arlen is just like, she's that strong, silent protagonist that you do have in a lot of noir films as they just like kind of go on this journey, you know, meeting different characters and things like that. And it, and it just like kind of, there's no start and end really, you know, we pick up in the middle and then we still end without resolution as well. So you, you do have that Western aspect. Um, uh, Anna Lily described as a cannibal romance because a uh, Miami man is a cannibal and there is a romance between the Miami man and Arlen as they come from two different sides of the coin of the bad of the same coin because that's kind of what this whole thing of the bad batch is about is you know they're almost in place for marginalized people in general minorities because within the bad batch they're still people of different races, there's cannibals and non-cannibals, there's more violent criminals, and there's less, you know, and then there's maybe criminals that, you know, are just kind of there, because, like, we find out the Miami man, he's not, you know, just a bad person, he was, he was an illegal immigrant, so that's why he got um, sentenced to be Bad Batch. So, the Bad Batch stands in as just this overall, you know, stand-in for minorities and marginalized people, and Arlen's trying to figure out, like, you know, she obviously doesn't want to be a cannibal, but she doesn't feel at home or comfortable in comfort. So she's really just trying to figure herself and the situation out the best that she can. And, um, you know, so and then between her and Miami man through their circumstances, which very twisted circumstances, um, you know, have this romance 
ish. I mean, and you know, she called it a romance, but I'll say this movie is a light on the romance. That is kind of a backseat. But it, but at the same time, I, I do kind of like it that it wasn't like an overbearing thing either. Because it's like, you know, two characters that they're in a situation where it's like love isn't exactly the thing on their mind right now. But or or romance in general. So so you have that. So and then this movie where the horror elements come in is like I said, we got cannibalism. The opening of this movie is very like this movie opens and bursts with violence in this just like gnarly scene where I love the whole setup of this. But um but before I get into the setup of it, while I finish this out. We have horror elements of cannibalism. We have people getting arms and limbs chopped off. Um, people die. And, like, there's there's bursts of violence throughout this movie. So, also, still in that kind of Western vein as well. So, that's the, the subgenres we got cooking up here on top of being just a sweltering summertime, no fun in the sun type of movie. So, that's all the genres that we got going here. So, the opening of this movie is my favorite um, part of the film, the opening, I would say, I guess seven minutes before. So it's seven and 11, seven minutes and 11 seconds before we get to the title card. And this seven minutes could probably serve as a short film itself, like just by itself. And you wouldn't really need the rest of the film. It, it's, it's interesting enough. I wonder if maybe, um, that's how she pitched the film. I wonder if she wrote the script and then maybe shot some, um, test footage of this scene, or at least that's the way I would have done it if I was, um, trying to direct this film because it, it, it's just such a perfect, we get a little bit of setup for the world and what's going on with just some talking between some guards that we don't see. We see this off camera and they're making announcements, um, explaining some of the rules to the bad batch. And then we see Arlen get her tattoo, all the bad batch that marked with a tattoo. And then they are just sent out into the world and then there's a sign at the beginning of the film that um, that explains the whole situation going on. So that happens really quick. And so Arlen is, you know, we see just her first initial reaction to being Bad Batch and sent out on her own. She's uh, she's just trying to find some shelter. They have a little bit of rations to start off with, you know. Um, she has like a little bit of snacks and like one possession. We kind of learn a little bit about Arlen just from um, her tattoos and her fashion. And um, we, we see a picture of her with a assumed girlfriend. So I totally forgot that Arlen is bisexual. So let's get that gay representation up in here. Because I'm pretty sure Suki Waterhouse is also bisexual in real life, I believe. I don't know. Um, I do know she's dating my boy Bobby Pats right now. That's pretty dope. That's a hot-ass couple right there. Um, but anyways, so we, we see that she has this picture. Um, and then, so we, we just kind of see she's, she's going along, and then instantly we're thrust into the action when some uh, muscle heads on a golf cart start chasing her down, and uh, they kidnap her, and they knock her out. They knock her out, and then she wakes up, and Arlen is all chained up. She's all chained up, and then they're shooting some shit into her arm to numb her up. 
because she's about to get her limbs hacked off. And it's really great because um, she's like, you know, she sees what's about to go on. She starts screaming. The bridge person that's about to cut her up just uh, fucking turns the music up, which is something we see a couple times because, I mean, you know, the, the cannibals are doing what they have to to survive, I suppose. And maybe a lot of them don't want to do it, but then it's also just kind of like, hey, I don't want to hear you screaming while I saw your leg off and saw your arm off. And I mean, we see it and it's just, it's really great. I mean, cause they, they show enough of it where you see the motion and the sounds, you know, but then they kind of have it just so slightly out of focus or out of frame where we actually see like, you know, the sawing going on, but we do see like her like leg put in a bucket and her arm put on the grill with her hand and her hand has tattoos on it. And yeah, so right out the gate, Arlen's left with just one arm and one leg, but we learn super quickly that Arlen is fucking willing to do what she's got to do. Like, cause she gets, we see how capable she is in the way that she, uh, starts thinking and implementing her plan to escape. Um, you know, so her plan is she's so fucking smart. She fucking shits herself. (laughs) She like, or she shits in her fucking pan and then takes it, covers herself in shit. So she just smells real bad. She's disgusting. She's bringing in flies. So the cannibal has no choice but to wash her off. And while she's washing her off, she has her distracted. And then that's when Arlen fucking can grab a piece of uh, a metal rod. And she beats the shit out of this bitch. With one arm, mind you. She has to drag herself around. So she just drags herself. And while she's laying on her back... She's fucking swinging this rod to fucking kill this bitch. And that's how I knew right out the gate, Arlen ain't no girl to fuck with. So she escapes quickly. We see that she's resilient. We see that she's resourceful when she fucking grabs a skateboard. And that's how she fucking just like drags herself away from the cannibals. Is She just pushes herself with her one arm and leg on, on a fucking skateboard. Man, she is fucking one tough bitch. I love Arlen. We see Sookie Waterhouse give some real physical acting with her just grunts, her her noises, her facial expressions. It's a full seven minutes and 11 seconds before we get to the title card where after, after she escapes, she is picked up by the hermit, by Jim Carrey, and he puts her in a shopping cart and takes her to comfort, and that's where we get to the title card. It's such a great opening, like I said. You, just, you learn a lot about Arlen. Mind you, she still hasn't said a word yet, but she she's just good, and she fucking, it, and I mean, I'd assume that she is a righty, that she's right-handed. They took her good arm, they took her good arm and her right leg as well. Like, fuck, like, you know, like, but that's how you throw a character into a situation in a world and set it up for your audience and be like, this is what's going on. Which is interesting because the setup is so good and quick, but then we just like kind of sit in this world for a little bit, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. So, you know, I just love, love that opening. And and it's a full, it's not until 20 minutes and 24 seconds that Arlen even actually speaks words. Like, we don't get anything from her but physical acting and facial expressions and... Um, you know, you just have to have the right cast to do that. 
I hadn't seen Sookie Waterhouse in anything up until um, up until this movie. And then she's also an Assassination Nation that I love that I'll probably be covering on the podcast at some point. She just has this, she has this look, she has this presence, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's hard to describe, but I, I think she's a, she's a fantastic actress and, um, you know, the perfect person to lead this, this movie. Mm. Ring pop. Then we see how the other side lives a little bit more. We catch up with Miami, man. Um, we see... That the bridge people, it's just a bunch of muscle heads just fucking working out. They fucking just look crazy. Everybody's super shredded and round because they're just, all they're doing is fucking working out and eating people. And Miami man is fucking, you know, he's just watching over. He has people that he fucking cuts up and shit. And you can see from the introduction scene with him with with again Jason Momoa uh doesn't say anything you know he we first just see him looking on um and we kind of get introduced to his world but then um the next shot you know because we see all these crazy muscle heads but then we see him that he has a daughter and he likes to paint Miami man is an artist he's a he likes to draw and he likes to paint and he's painting with his daughter and you're like oh this guy's sweet He's got a little cute daughter. He's wearing his cute little reading glasses while he's painting because he's so big. You know, it's it's so cute. But then you're reminded he's a cannibal muscle man because he goes out and he has a girl that he doesn't want to cut up. He doesn't want to kill her. She's screaming and stuff. He puts headphones on because he doesn't want to listen to it. He doesn't like it. And she's just going crazy. And like, you know, he could have kept her alive and just like, you know, chopped off an arm. Instead... He just snaps her neck and kills her because she was too frantic and then just fucking shreds up the rest of her body. And we see, we see this as he's just fucking cutting up carcasses, you know, and then we see fucking, and, and then you remember, oh, he has a daughter. Oh, and the daughter eats people too. Arlen points this out later, but so, so we see how the two of them are living, right? And then, um, Arlen is just angry, obviously, she's missing an arm, she's missing a leg, she's been in uh, comfort for like five or six months at this point now, and she's been just stewing, you know, and so she gets a gun, and she finds some fucking bridge people, and it's the little girl and her mom just looking for some shit, and she goes up to the mom, the mom's like, no, you know, and Arlen has a gun, because she's angry, she just hates the bridge people, she just has this association with them now, because of what they did to her, and she wants revenge one way or another, and is it gonna make her feel better, um, she fucking, you know, they have this exchange where she's like, hey, we're both bad batch, you know, I didn't do that to you, I didn't, I don't have a beef with you, but Arlen doesn't care, she said, no, we're not the same, even though we're both bad batch, we're not the same, so this is the, the identity crisis that Arlen's going to be working with for the rest of the movie. But then she shoots her. Pow. Fucking shoots her right in the head. Right in front of the little girl. Doesn't even like get the little girl to like turn around or anything. It's cold-blooded. Like so cold-blooded. And just does it and drops her. And then you, you can kind of see on her face that she immediately regrets it. It doesn't make her feel better. You know, shooting that bridge person isn't going to make her arm or leg come back. It's not going to make her not bad batch anymore. 
And you kind of see that immediately. So this is where Arlen's just going to be kind of struggling the rest of the movie. You know, she doesn't know where she wants to be. She doesn't know who she is anymore. And we just kind of see that the little girl follows her home. We know that the little girl is Miami man's daughter. So Miami man goes on the hunt. He comes across Arlen um, because Arlen's having an acid trip. And um, he doesn't know that she killed the daughter's mom. He doesn't know that she lost the girl. So the little girl follows her back to comfort after she shot the mom. And Arlen goes to one of the night raves and does some acid. So she loses track of the little girl. Um, And at this rave is where we get introduced to the dream. Keanu Reeves, the best disco cult leader you've ever seen. With a mustache and some rounded rectangular or rounded square sunglasses, decked out in all white. He has a nice haircut. Oh man. Like, how do you take Keanu Reeves, one of the most beloved men, and they make him so cool and interesting, only to find out later that he fucking is manipulating and brainwashing women and fucking getting them pregnant to like, you know, spread the dream. And he's fucking manipulating this community by using the drugs to his advantage. And under the guise he's providing for him and becoming the one thing that they are not a part of anymore. The system. However, when we're introduced to Keanu Reeves, though, um, he gives a great speech. He's sitting on top of the boombox fucking stereo. And he's got Jimmy underneath. And uh, he just he addresses his congregation and... You know, I, I, I call myself a, a disco cult daddy as well. Cult daddy in search of movies. I just, you know, it's not that I respect it, because that's, that's a weird way to put it. And, but there's something about, and I'm not, I'm not a religious person either. But there's something about, in movies, like depiction of, different depictions of worship, of idolization. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, with this in particular, you know, the way that the dream takes advantage of this community and the position that they're in. And maybe what he's doing isn't terrible because we find out, you know, he's the one. I mean, he provides the community with drugs. He provides them with water. Um, He takes the shit away. I guess he used to be a plumber. We don't really get any explanation for this. But, um, you know, he's he's just doing his thing. And but there's a there's just something about when he's given this speech and his empowered speech and all these fucking acid people tripping out of their brains just listening and dancing and vibing with what he's saying and it makes sense. And I don't know. It's just I love how she wrote the dream and Kanye and Kanye West. <laughs> um, I guess that's where my correlation is from the opening of the episode to this movie. Um, but you know, you take Keanu Reeves, one of the most lovable men, and you take that charisma and that presence, because like I said, everybody in this movie has presence and, uh, he gives this great speech. It rhymes, you know, there's a, there's a point where he says, you know, he's just describing the bad batch and where he's at. And he's talking about how they're not wealthy enough, healthy enough. Like, I mean, the dream is out here spitting bars, y'all. But like I said, he's, he's just saying what you know, he's, he's, he's like a siren, you know, he's spitting sweet nothings out to the community of comfort and kind of just brainwash him into thinking 
that what's going on, their lifestyle is okay when it's not. I think that's kind of what you're supposed to learn from being the bad batches. Hey, um, you know, you have to be able to accept that you're a part of the bad batch and that you're a bad person, but be able to live with that versus the people of comfort just kind of escape from it. They escape from reality with just doing drugs constantly. And then the bridge people are kind of, you know, they're doing something immoral, but they're doing what they think that they have to do to survive. So there's there's just two different sides of the same coin, but it, all in all, you know, I think it's just supposed to say, hey, we're all bad people. And um, you just kind of got to live with that or find a, find a meaningful way to live with that. And that's what Arlen's looking for. And um, so she loses, and I guess she thinks it's that little girl, but she loses the little girl. She loses the little girl while she's tripping on acid. She leaves comfort while she's tripping acid. So she's just walking in the desert by herself. And she runs into Miami man. They have a moment for a second where she feels up his muscles while she's tripping. And then she passes out. She wakes up safe. So obviously Miami man stayed with her and protected her. But he also took her leg and said, hey, you're going to take me to comfort um, if you want your leg back so you can help me find my daughter. She doesn't tell him that, oh, hey, I shot her mom, baby mama, your wife or your girlfriend, whoever she is to you. I shot her, but we never get that. We just get this little journey between them because Arlen is hiding from who she is. You know, she doesn't want to admit that she's a bad person, especially now that she's fucking killed somebody versus Miami man is a little bit more content on who he is, the situation that they're in, you know, and he just kind of, he, he takes it for what it is. And I believe that's even a a quote that he says, he says, you just got to be able to take things for the way they, they actually are. And, um, you know, and that's just kind of an interesting sentiment to life in general, you know, especially right now when we're in an epidemic and everybody's just like, you know, everybody wants answers, you know, and everybody thinks they have the answer and, um, everybody's scared, you know, and I think it's just, we all need to be able to sit back and relax and think, or not sit back and relax, but sit back and think to yourself, you know, admit to yourself, hey, we're scared. We're in a scary situation. We don't have the answers. We don't know what's going on. I think that's something that us as a society now can take from this movie. So there's my uh, enlightening ness of uh, this episode. You know, I, I say things, I, I say enlighteningness, which is not a word. But trust me, I do say things that make me sound smart sometimes. I think uh, it just took me a minute to crack this movie for a sec. So they they journey through the desert. They go back to Comfort. Well, actually, someone from Comfort finds her and then shoots Miami Man, takes her back. But the Miami Man goes back, finds her, and then she goes to go rescue the little girl who is now with the Dream because, you know, the Dream wants little kids and is doing his fucking weird grooming sex cult shit. And so he takes the little girl and Arlen wants to go rescue the little girl. The dream, even though Arlen is, you know, got her prosthetics and stuff, he says, you know what? You're flawed, but I still take you the way you are. And if you want to join me, you know, he does it the way that a fucking smart, manipulative cult leader does. And it's just like, ugh. Because he, he has another really great, you know, monologue about what he does for comfort. And 
you know, puts puts Arlen to the test and you kind of think that she's like she kind of falls in his trance and is listening to what she what he's saying, but we see that it's all bullshit, so that way she can uh rescue the little girl and go. She rescues the little girl, finds Miami man, they're reunited, they're gonna be a little family out in the desert now, I guess. And I mean that's the the main run through of the movie. Just a lot of the things I wanted to touch on, like I said, it was it has some interesting themes and it's explored with and it's explored with minimum uh, plot. It's uh, it is just you, you spend time with these characters, you know, with Miami Man and Arlen as they're kind of bonding with Arlen as she's contemplating her identity and her place in society now, her identity now that she doesn't have an arm and leg. You know, she has this new identity as a handy, capable person as well as an amputee. And it's just a lot of you sitting with these characters and processing some of those thoughts. And Anna Lily just does that with these dazzling visuals. I mean, the acid trip scene is great. The night rave, uh, the like rave scene at night is uh, looks really great. The way that everything is so bleak in this entire world and then as soon as you go into the dreams fucking mansion it's just like you're transported back to like regular life and he's fucking just living luxurious and fucking has this lavish production uh set and and it looks really good has this blue coloring to it um there's a lot of really great uses of color particularly like blues and greens and yellows in this movie um it's just a it's a visual feast it's an audio (laughs) An, an audio, an audible audio. It's an audible feast as well. It has a, it has a really good score, uh, but it mainly uses original music. Um, like it uses like licensed music. Um, Anna Lily has some eclectic taste. I do know before she like stopped being on social media, she uh, loved to share her like music taste and she loves to like curate the playlist for these, um, for these movies, like with songs that she's listening to while she was like writing the script that's something that I want to do as a filmmaker as well in really ingraining music into into um into the into the movie why did I just like I just like broke for a second into the into the into the into the (laughs) like oh my god oh that's so funny but yeah I, I just really, I love the way that she uses music, the way that she uses visuals, because it is just, she's all visual storytelling. Like I said, there's there's not a lot of dialogue, except from The Dream and Arlen. Miami Man is pre-reserved to himself as well. And because when you have great music and great visuals and great actors that bring the emotion through their actions, you don't need words like I swear I'm gonna make a fucking silent film I'm bringing them back guys I'm gonna make a like I'm gonna make some fucking silent films where you don't need the fucking dialogue I'll put the subtitles there if you want them but film is a visual medium you know and if you can tell your story through the visuals then fuck words I you know so I don't know there's um (laughs) what just one thing randomly that I wanted to touch on. I just saw it in my notes. There's a sign in comfort. It says you can't enter the dream unless the dream enters you. And Keanu Reeves is talking about a metaphorical dream as well. But then we see he means it literally 
as he has the women wearing shirts that say the dream is inside of me, as in the dream, his fucking seed is in them because they're pregnant. It's fucking weird. Uh, it's so weird. You know, I just, I love the aesthetic. I love the the heat of it. Like I said, I think the desert setting just really does put this bleakness into the film as well. And, you know, it's just this, this fucking wasteland that is what real life could, that what real life could potentially be. Because, like, imagine if we did, like, a Bad Batch situation. There would, because there's so much money that goes into the prison systems. And the prison systems are over flooded. You know, those need reformed anyways. But it's just like, yo, what if we fucking did that? You know, we would be saving a lot of money. And that money could be going elsewhere. And it also kind of does give a chance for, you know, these people to to really become either better by surviving they're gonna by surviving that situation they're just gonna become better people in general or they might resort to even lower lows like cannibalism but i think if they're survivors they're they're gonna be learning from that experience or they're gonna die so i don't know maybe instead of fucking having capital punishment and the death sentence where we actually take the lives or like for just like the high, like for like murderers, pedophiles, um, like, you know, high, high ranking criminals, make them the bad batch, have a, have a land, let them fucking survive. That's also like another subgenre I love is just putting regular people in a situation that is very feasible, but grounded, put them in that situation, see how they interact with each other, how they survive. I love that subgenre of film. So as I wrap up this, the rest of this episode, um, one, I love that there's a lot of practical things in this film as well, you know, with the effects with the limbs, um, with severed limbs. I didn't, I didn't really think about it until the other day, but you know, there's no CGI in this movie except for CGI. I mean, I don't even, I, would I say it's CGI computer generated effects? Um, yeah. I mean, or what, what's the I in, in CGI stand for? I don't know. But the only visual effects are was, uh, they had to green screen out, you know, Sookie Waterhouse's arm for the entire movie. I thought that, I, I didn't really think about that, and I was like, oh, that's a, and, and it's just very seamless, you don't see it, there's not like a weird, like, there's no weird blending issues, um, it's very clean the way that they do it, um, really good acting by Suki Waterhouse of being aware of having the prosthetic arm there, but then also, like, walking with a limp, because they gave her a prosthetic leg, but obviously, that is just Suki Waterhouse in her fucking, you know, just walking, so, um, kudos to her and, uh, throwing in a nice little limp in there to remind us, but, uh, yeah, there's a, there's just a lot of really cool things in this movie, and this movie isn't for everybody, a lot of people are gonna ask what the point of it is, like, you know, because we do just, there's a lot of setup and a lot of just hanging out with certain characters, you know, so, 
Um, some people, like I said, call the style over substance that it just looks and sounds nice, but there's no point to it. But there is a point to it, which, you know, I think I got pretty deep into it. So I'd, I'd say there's definitely a point to it. Um, the one complaint I would say is that they do spend so much time with the setup that the one plot thread that they developed with Arlen killing the little girl's mom um, is never resolved. One, because they, I guess they never define that she is Miami Man's wife. I mean, I assume that is her mom, but he also didn't, I mean, his reaction was pretty reserved when he found her dead body. So, I mean, I don't know how upset he actually was about her dying or if he was just with her just because of the circumstances of being in the Bad Batch and that's the person he was with. So maybe he wasn't actually in love with her. But, um, you know, by the end of the movie, like I said, they're this little family out in the desert now and Arlen's never said that Miami man killed them or, or Arlen has never said that she's the one that shot the mom and got the little girl in that situation in the first place. None of that really gets resolved. And because that's like something that would have come up like, you know, in the, at the end of the second act that drives them apart and then brings them back together. That's what would happen in a regular romance movie. So I guess that's where the subversion is that we don't have that wedge that's driven between them. It's more, they're just brought together by the circumstances and they'll figure it out later as they'll figure out the rest of life. So I guess that's my one complaint, but even then I still just kind of explained it away. So the bad batch, great movie. I really love it. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. If you have not seen it and you're just still listening to this podcast, I just told you everything about it. But uh, make sure you watch it if you still have not for some reason seen this movie. I'm really excited for Anna Lily's next uh, film. She has a third film coming out. It'll be set in New Orleans. Mona Lisa on the Blood Moon starring Kate Hudson. So I don't know. I think that'll be interesting. I haven't seen a lot of Kate Hudson lately. But uh, Anna Lily, she's a really talented director, um, a director that I would say influences my style quite a bit. We'll get into more of that when I talk A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night at some point. But that is it for The Bad Batch. So like I said, um, the rest of the month is Fun in the Sun. So all of the episodes in July are, you know, some heat-soaked horror Ooh, there we go. I love it. Heat-soaked horror. That's what this uh, this month is for the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Next week, we have a double feature of two of my favorites whenever I was a kid. They are two um, late 90s um, daytime horror monster movies. We have Anaconda and Tremors. Ooh, I'm so excited for to revisit these movies. I love both of them so much. So that'll make for a really fun double feature. The week after that, we are talking Us and the Double with special guest Spooky Astronauts. So I'm super excited to talk with her. She's a very great horror YouTube channel. And then I will be closing out the month talking about The Final Girls, another underrated gem that I absolutely love. So that's going to be covering all the heat-soaked horror that we have coming in July for the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. But, you know, I don't think I have anything else for you guys um, except for that. So, you know what? 
That's going to do it for this episode. Just make sure you are following me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Bloody Blunts with three O's. Subscribe to the YouTube channel for videos and uh, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review if you love me because I love you guys. So until next week, stay lifted. <laughs>